Hello, I'm your host, Stephanie Miller, and you're listening to The Killer Kind. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I want to say welcome to our new listeners and welcome back to my longtime listeners. I've got a wild case for you guys today. Today's episode has a little bit of a theme to it. I'm calling it my Christmas in July episode. I know it's like 900 degrees everywhere, so we might all be wishing for Christmas. So I'm going to be bringing that to you guys the only way I know how. Today's case takes place during Christmas 1992, when a 25-year-old teacher is missing from work one day, and she never missed work. She was never even late. So what happened, and who did it? Well, let's find out. Let's dive into the murder of Christy Marak. Christy Ann Marak was born on November 3, 1967, originally from Shimokin, Pennsylvania, where she lived with her parents, Vincent and Geraldine Marak. Christy was the middle child in the family. She had an older sister named Alicia and a younger brother named Vince, and it really seemed like Christy had a great childhood. Growing up, her brother Vince said she was fun. She would lighten up a room when she walked in. And later in life, Vince said Christy was opinionated, never one to back down, but she was an amazing person. Growing up, she was outgoing, she was spontaneous, but she was so kind and genuine as well. Speaking of spontaneous, though, Christy dragged her friend Annie one year to a live taping of a TV show in the 80s. It was called Dancing on Air, where a bunch of young people would sing and dance along to music, and it was recorded live. Christy and Annie made it on the live show, and they had a blast. So like I said, she was a fun person, but also a very caring one. Her friend Annie said that she would truly do anything for anyone. She said in an interview with Cold Case Files that I know people always say that, but she truly would. She enjoyed taking care of others, and from a very young age, she knew she wanted to be a teacher. Vince said she loved to play teacher. He remembers her making him go into the garage and he'd have to pretend to be her student while she got her chalkboard out and write, like, wrote equations on it and pretended to be his teacher, which was so cute. And I'm sure we all remember those days playing teacher or doctor, firefighter, police officer as a kid, all those fun things. And how many of us really ended up doing that as an adult? Maybe not many of us, but not Christy. Her passion for teaching started at an early age, and it continued into her adult life. After she graduated high school, she pursued her dream of being a teacher. She went to college at Millersville University and got her degree in elementary education. After graduating, Christy landed a job as a sixth-grade teacher at Roarstown Elementary in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She actually moved to Lancaster for this job, which was almost two hours away from her hometown in Shimokin. And Christy loved her job and her students. The principal at the time, Harry Goodman, said he was a principal for 27 years and that there were teachers that could that you could walk into their classroom and you would get chills. And Christy was certainly that kind of teacher. He said the kids were just so in tune with her and he could tell that she really enjoyed what she was doing. And in December 1992, her brother said, His sister felt like everything was going in the right direction for her, and he said it definitely seemed like it was. 
that was until Monday, December 21st. That Sunday night, the 25-year-old teacher stayed up wrapping each one of her 24 students a Christmas gift. She bought them all a book, and she was wrapping each one to hand out to her students that Monday morning. They only had two or three more days left of the school year before Christmas break, and Christy was really looking forward to those final days to spend with her kids. That's why when Christy was late to work that next morning, her coworkers knew something was wrong. Christy was never late. So Principal Goodman called Christy's apartment. He said he called five times and left messages on her answering machine asking, you know, Christy, are you there? We're worried about you, that sort of thing. But after five calls and hearing nothing back from Christy, Harry decided to call Christy's mom, thinking maybe she had some insight as to where Christy could be. Her brother Vince remembers that call vividly. He said his mom got the call when she was upstairs in their home back in Shemokin. He said he remembers his mom coming downstairs with a look of worry on her face. She said Christy didn't show up to work. They too hadn't heard from the young teacher, so since her family was two hours away, Principal Goodman volunteered to drive over to Christy's Greenfield Estates apartment. He said he'll probably find her on the side of the road or, you know, with a flat tire or something. So he'll probably have to change it for her. And then the two can get back to the school. He really wasn't thinking anything of it. However, the closer he got to the apartment, he became more and more worried because he wasn't seeing her broken down on the side of the road. And when he got to her apartment complex, he noticed her car was still parked in the parking lot. So hesitantly, he walked up to the apartment door and noticed it was slightly open. That's when the nerves really set in. He said he called out to Christy from the doorway and there was no response. Harry pushed open the door and took just a few steps inside and found the lifeless body of 25-year-old Christy Marac. And the state her body was in was horrific. This was not something anyone should ever have to witness. Christy was nude from the waist down. The clothes she was wearing on the upper half of her body were pushed up to her chest. And not only that, she had suffered significant injuries to her face and neck. It appeared as though she had been strangled. But there were also several bruises and markings all over Christy's body. Principal Goodman immediately ran out of the apartment screaming for help. He went door to door trying to find someone who would let him in to use their phone to call 911. This was 1992, so cell phones weren't as much of a thing. Eventually, someone did let him in, and at 9.20 a.m. that morning, Harry called to report an accident at his co-worker's home. Lancaster County Police and Rescue Units arrived at the apartment, and after reviewing Christy's body, they were able to determine that she was, in fact, deceased. Police rope the apartment off as a crime scene, and they start their investigation. In the meantime, Christy's family was wondering what had happened because they knew the principal was going to her house, but they hadn't heard anything. And knowing something was probably wrong, they were worried. Vince said they called Christy's apartment several times, thinking either Principal Harry or Christy herself would even answer eventually. And someone did finally pick up, but sadly, it was the police. And they told the family that there had been an accident and Christy had passed. They were devastated, and I know they were absolutely destroyed, but so was Principal Goodman. Could you imagine finding your friend and coworker like that? 
Isaiah suffered from screaming nightmares for over five years. And he's been in therapy since then as well. It's just heartbreaking. And something we don't always think about, how the people are affected who find the body. Because a lot of times, especially in this last episode, it's strangers that find these murder victims. So you have this person whose whole life is forever changed. It's not always just the family or the victim. It's those that find themselves involved with this person and they don't even really know them. It's so sad. Now, moving on, let's get into the scene, okay? So there is some old grainy police footage of the crime scene, and it's just a sad scene. There is wrapping paper and the presents that she had wrapped for her students scattered all over the floor in the living room, right around Christie's body. When the crime scene was processed, they were able to determine the initial interaction between Christy and her attacker took place right inside the doorway. There were signs of scuff marks on the entryway floor, as well as on the back of the front door. Also, Christy was wearing a jacket and gloves, so that led investigators to believe she was likely getting ready to leave for work that morning when the attack occurred. So from the front door, it's clear there was a struggle that carried on into the living room where her body was found. After an autopsy was conducted, it was determined the cause of death was strangulation with her own sweater, according to reports. And it was confirmed that she had also been sexually assaulted. There was semen found on Christy as well as under her body. And that part of the carpet was cut out and taken to the crime lab for testing. In the meantime, a manhunt was underway. So the police department started canvassing the neighborhood, talking to neighbors and hopefully potential witnesses. And it turns out there was someone that saw something that day. A lady that lived at the apartment complex claimed she was out walking her dog at around 7.15 a.m. And she noticed a white or light colored vehicle parked in the overflow parking that was directly across the street from Christie's townhome. She saw what she described as a white male with a muscular type build, stringy dark hair, exit that vehicle and walk toward Christie's apartment. At that point, the witness's roommate comes out and the two start having a conversation. And while they were talking, she reported hearing a strange high-pitched scream. She wasn't sure if that scream came from Christy or not, but it definitely seemed like it. Now, obviously, the detectives wanted to get that information out to the public as soon as possible. So they ended up developing a sketch of the potential attacker, as well as a description of the vehicle the witness saw. Now, Chrissy did have a roommate. She did not live alone. So investigators knew they had to find out from her what happened that morning, or at least help confirm the time frame of the attack. The roommate stated that she that when she got up for work, Christy was already awake. She said Christy woke up pretty early most days, so she wasn't too surprised to see her up and at it already. Now, the roommate claimed she left the apartment at around 7 a.m. and that Christy usually left for work between 7.30 and 7.45. So there was at least a 30-minute window, if you will. Did the attacker know this? Had he been watching Christy? Did he know her? We're starting to have all these questions. But the following day, after the young teacher's brutal murder, it was the last day of school 
for the students at Roars Elementary. And instead of Christmas spirit and excitement for the holiday, the news of Miss Marac's passing spread around the school. It was a day of mourning for everyone. That wasn't until sadness turned into confusion or suspicion, if you will, when a man shows up at the school with flowers in hand for Christy. A few ladies in the office looked at him confused, rightfully so. They asked him if he's aware of what happened to Christy, and he says no. So they break the news to him. But after that, they call police because they're thinking this guy showing up asking for Christy was too suspicious. This is a small town, and everyone would have heard the news by now. So they definitely thought something was up here, which good for them for you know, taking the initiative to call. So detectives show up at the school and the guy is still there. Not sure why he was there that long or maybe he was told that they were calling police. I don't know. But when detectives arrive, they ask him what he's doing there. And he claims to be Christie's ex-boyfriend, Dagger. He said the two had recently dated and he just wanted to come see her again. After finding out that he had dated Christy, detectives ask him to come down to the station to answer some questions. Now, husbands, boyfriends, and ex-boyfriends are always the first suspects, so this is not surprising. What was surprising, though, was that Dagger was twice Christy's age. Come to find out he was 20 years older than her. He said the two met at a local bar a couple of years prior, and they ended up dating for a couple of years. The only problem was Dagger was married at the time and still was. It was determined later that Christy kept their relationship a secret from her family. She obviously didn't want them to know she was dating a married man. And she did, however, tell her close friend, Annie. And Annie said she was a little worried about their relationship, but just told her to be careful. There was speculation as well that Christy might have known her attacker because there was no sign of forced entry. So could this Dagger character be her attacker? And Dagger's story only gets more suspicious when he tells investigators that the two broke up just two days before she was killed. Supposedly, Christy ended the relationship that Saturday before her death. Dagger tried talking to Christy that Sunday and even that Monday, but when his calls went unanswered, he decided to go to the school and try to talk to her in person. Obviously, this made him even more of a suspect. I mean, she had just ended their relationship two days prior, and he clearly didn't want that to end since he was still trying to talk to her and bringing her flowers to where she worked. And as all we know, the killer almost always stays close to the scene of the crime whether they're assisting in searches for their, quote, missing victim or whether they're showing up to the victim's work. So detectives needed to see if this guy had an alibi. Dagger claimed that the morning of Chrissy's murder, he was actually in Virginia. He had recently moved there to be with his wife. I mean, this guy was a real winner, right? It's like, Christy, what were you thinking? But on that particular morning, he did have an alibi. Supposedly, he was getting his vehicle registration and his driver's license changed to his new address. That information was corroborated, therefore his alibi checked out. He also willingly submitted DNA for analysis and agreed to a polygraph test, both of which cleared him as a suspect. So, detectives were back to square one. 
And the most frustrating part of this case in the beginning is how they have this abundance of DNA from the killer. They have his semen as well as DNA from drops of blood found on Christie's body. Of course, they try to match that to anyone they possibly can. Now, in 1992, they did have the DNA database named CODIS, which is the Combined DNA Index System. The problem is that was started just two years prior in 1990, so they didn't have millions of DNA profiles in there like they probably do now. They only had DNA profiles of previously convicted offenders from just 12 states. As you might expect, when the DNA found at the crime scene was entered into CODIS, there was no match. So the killer could be anyone. And here you have this quiet town in a panic because there's a killer on the loose. Something like this just did not happen in Lancaster, according to the locals. And speaking of the locals, they were heavily involved in this case. They were calling with leads. They were sending in any and every tip they could. And detectives were hard at work as well. Police followed up on every lead that came in. And one pretty big theory was that there was a peeping Tom in the area. Several women called to report a certain peeping Tom in the Greenfield Estates where Christy lived, thinking that maybe this pervert could have done it. However, detectives were never able to identify this man. So once again, they're at a dead end. Five days after Christy's murder, her family had to do the unthinkable. They had to bury their daughter and sister. Her brother Vince said it's a day that he tries to forget because it was so painful for him and his family. Her friend Annie, though, said she was standing in the church that day and remembered feeling like she wasn't even there. She said it was like I was there physically, but mentally I wasn't. But at one point, she had someone come up to her and told her to turn around. So she did. And the person told her, look, That just shows how many people loved Christy. The church was packed full of people. Although it was extremely difficult for everyone, everyone showed up to show their love for Christy. Now, the weeks turned into months, and the months turned into years. And by 1995, 1,500 people had been interviewed, and 60 potential suspects had been cleared. And at that point, the case became cold. In December 2002, Christy's mom sadly passed away after losing her battle with cancer. She tearfully told her son Vince to never let this go, and he assured her that he wouldn't. Vince said he stayed in close contact with the lead investigator for many years, despite little to no movement in the case. In 2007, Vince got an idea from another family whose daughter was murdered, Lindy Beekler. She was a 19-year-old female who was sexually assaulted and murdered in Lancaster County, just like Christy. Her murder took place in 1975, and it was still unsolved at that point. Both Christy and Lindy's family joined together and made a giant billboard on a major highway in Lancaster. It had a picture of Christy and Lindy, and it read, Do you know who murdered us? It was jarring, but it definitely sent a message. Vince said he wanted the killer to see it, hoping that would encourage them to talk. Lots of people called in to report 
potential leads and things like that, but nothing concrete came from those reports. And I'll go ahead and say that Lindy's murder was actually solved just this last year. Although I've spoiled the outcome, let me know if you'd like me to cover that case in the future. Now, Vince wasn't going to give up. He made his mother a promise and he was keeping it. So in 2009, he created a Facebook page dedicated to his sister's murder. Again, keeping his sister's name alive and hoping the right person would see it and come forward. In October 2015, the Lancaster District Attorney's Office took on the case, hoping to bring much-needed closure to Chrissy's family. Assistant DA Christine Wilson took the lead, and she was just a senior in high school at the time of Christy's death. She said she reminded her a lot of herself and her girlfriends, so since she started at the DA's office, she knew she wanted to work on this case. So once the case was in her hands, she started to try everything possible to solve it. She said that two detectives on the case went to a conference and they heard about a company called Parabon, which is crazy. So apparently with their technology, you can submit DNA and the phenotyping basically predicts a genetic makeup of a person. It can tell you their skin tone, their country of origin, how their face would be shaped, their eye color and hair color. It is wild. Now, it doesn't give the weight of a person, and obviously a person's like appearance can change based on their different life choices. However, they were able to come up with the face of the killer. They were also able to generate age progression images as well. So they were able to set the initial age at 25, then they had the face age to 45, and then to 55. Obviously, 25 was a good age because that's how old Christy was. And the killer could have been close to her age. But then again, she dated a man that was 20 years older than her. So she wanted to, like, they wanted to show someone older as well. So Parabon returned the images they came up with to the DA's office. And they just started racking their brains trying to figure out who this could be and think about all the suspects they had questioned and really trying to determine if these faces that they got back could be any of them. And they really didn't think anybody was a match. But at least they're not letting this case die. In November 2017, 25 years after Christie's death, they hold a press conference to present the phenotyping images of the killer to the public. Hoping for a tip or a lead or anything would come from it. However, that wasn't the case. So again, there's fresh hope but then it ends in disappointment. Christine Wilson from the DA's office said they continued to persevere and the goal was to never give up. Things take a very surprising turn when the Golden State Killer was caught in April 2018. Vince said that he was watching the news and saw where the identity of the Golden State Killer was determined based on genetic genealogy testing. I know I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but in case you don't know, it's basically a type of genetic testing commonly used as a way for people who are interested in their family history, kind of like a 23andMe or I believe in the case of the Golden State Killer, it was Jed Match. I want to say it was like his cousin or niece or something like that that submitted her DNA to them just for 
fun, basically just to use the services that it's used for. And then they were able to determine that she was a close relative to the DNA they had on file for a series of unsolved murders connected to the Golden State Killer. They narrowed it down to Joseph James D'Angelo, now 74. They were able to pull DNA from a piece of trash in his trash can outside of his home, and they were able to confirm his DNA was a match. He was the Golden State Killer. It was a wild time for the true crime world, if you missed that. So all that to say, Vince called Detective Chris Erb and Christine Wilson, who are both working the case. And he said, look, there's this new technology that I haven't even heard of. Could we try this in my sister's case? And ironically enough, not long after, Detective Herb said he received an email from Parabon saying they now offered that same genetic genealogy testing in the GSK case. So Herb and the team jumped on it. They reached out to Parabon and told them they could submit the DNA they already had of Chrissy's killer and use it for genetic testing. C.C. Moore, Parabon Nanolab's chief genetic genealogist, that's kind of hard to say, did an interview with Cold Case Files as well, and she said she got started right away. She prepped the samples and ran the test. Once that was done, she uploaded the results to GEDmatch and waited. The goal was to receive a list of close relatives in order to help identify the killer. She said when she uploads to GEDmatch, you can get a close relative or you can get like a very distant cousin. When the match list came in, there were what she considered, quote, close enough cousins to narrow down the search for the killer. And she had to do some research even after that. She said she had to research into like the cousins and ultimately creating like a family tree. She narrowed it down to one family in Lancaster, PA. And long story short, she found a male who is the right age and the right description. So she had her eyes set on this one man in particular. Now, based on the phenotyping images and the initial test done by Parabon, it was determined that the killer was of Northern European descent but that he also had Latin American or Puerto Rican ancestry as well. So after digging through old Lancaster newspapers and social media, trying to find a Puerto Rican connection, she finds an article about the man she was looking into. And he just so happened to mention that his dad was Puerto Rican. And turns out his mother was of Northern European descent, which was an exact match of the phenotype report. And that was all she needed. Cece Moore had found the killer. A man by the name of Raymond Rowe. After that, the DA received this information and they were shocked. They were able to determine that Raymond would have been 24 years old at the time of the murder. They were also able to determine that at the time of the murder, Raymond drove a very similar car seen by the eyewitness the morning of Christie's murder. This was definitely their guy. But who was Raymond Rowe? Well, come to find out, he was kind of a local celebrity in Lancaster, if you can believe it. He was a local DJ. He was known as DJ Freeze, which is so cringy. He also looked like a poly D wannabe. 
So just picture that. (laughs) He was pretty successful, though. He had a DJ school. He ran a DJ equipment rental store, as well as DJing at house parties, nightclubs, and eventually weddings. And what's crazy is Raymond Rowe still lived in Lancaster. He never moved away after Christie's murder. He got married. He had two kids there. He literally had to drive past Christie's apartment often, I'm sure. And he certainly saw Vince's billboard. This guy had no criminal history, though. Certainly no prior convictions. So that is why he had never been found in that CODIS database. The only problem was the DA had to treat this as a lead. They didn't quite have enough to convict him. They wanted to find a link between Christie and Raymond. How would these two have known each other? Well, Vin said his sister did enjoy the local nightlife, so it's possible they met at one of the clubs that he was DJing at. And detectives determined that Christy and Raymond lived in close proximity to one another. But other than that, they weren't able to find a link between the two. So they really needed to obtain a sample of his DNA so they could match it to the DNA found at the crime scene. But they didn't want to spook him, obviously, by calling him and asking for a DNA sample. So the DA went undercover with the help of the Pennsylvania State Police. The state police established surveillance teams and they followed Raymond. On May 31st, 2018, one of the teams followed Raymond into an event at a local elementary school. They are able to send at least one undercover trooper into the event she was able to even mingle with Roe during that event. And when it was over, she saw that he threw away a water bottle that contained a piece of gum inside. So the trooper was able to grab the bottle and gum to take for DNA testing. Once back at the lab, they were able to compare the DNA pulled from the chewing gum and the samples found on Christie's body. And there was no doubt that Raymond Roe was responsible for the murder of Christy Marak. On June 25th, 2018, he was arrested and charged with burglary, rape, and first-degree murder. The family was notified, and they were shocked. They had no idea who this guy even was. Christy's close friend Annie said her shock turned to anger pretty quickly because she said she finally had a face to put the anger to. Detective Herb interviewed Raymond, and he denied any involvement, of course, in Christie's murder. He denied even knowing her. However, when Detective Herb said he mentioned witnesses reporting a peeping Tom, Raymond supposedly leaned back in his chair, kind of taking a deep breath and just leaning back away from him, insinuating it could have been him. He went on to confirm that he did, in fact, drive a white Toyota Celica at the time, And that could definitely place him at the scene of the crime. But if he wasn't going to come clean about the murder, it would mean the case would go to trial. However, that wasn't the case, luckily. On January 8th, 2019, to avoid the death penalty, Raymond Rowe pleaded guilty to the charges against him. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 60 to 120 years. Now I have to add what Principal Harry Goodman said about Christie in his interview with Cold Case Files. 
He said, quote, knowing Christy like I did, she would be one that would have forgiven him. I know that she's at peace. I know that she's with her mother and I can't wait to see her and I will. I'll give her a huge hug and say, Christy, you made such a great impact on everybody. Ooh, that one was a tough one. I definitely teared up a lot listening to Principal Goodman say that about Christy at the end. That one was hard. But how wild that this genealogy testing is amazing. So if you killed anybody (laughs) from like 2010 back to whenever, your days are numbered. And what I would give to be able to work in that lab. (laughs) Just saying. But thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. I would always, always want to know your thoughts. So head over to the podcast Instagram page or the Facebook page and leave me your thoughts on that. I will be back here in two weeks with a brand new episode. Until then, stay safe. Bye.